We like to dabble in truth once in a while. Good morning. Good morning. How is everybody? How are you doing? Is everybody warm enough? Good, because we didn't get the new heating system all done yet, so we can't turn the heat up much more, but it's just a little test to see how we're going to do, I guess. I'm glad you're here today. I'm kind of glad to be here, too. I'm actually glad to be anywhere, but... Uh, Today's scripture, you may have already seen, is Romans, the great first chapter of Romans. Probably there's no more instruction anywhere in scripture in one chapter than in the first chapter of Romans, so hopefully you've got that on, marked in your Bible or on your app or whatever you're using uh, this morning for Bible reference. I'm in a series, uh, and you've heard me say this now many times, but I'm in a series that's been running for a few months entitled The Truth Is, and this is a series on Christian apologetics. I'm only going to say this a couple more times. Christian apologetics is not apologizing for being a Christian. That's not what that's about. But these are the foundational anchors, the systematic defense of the basic tenets of the Christian faith. That's what it's all about. Churches need to hear that more often. New Christians need to hear it. Older Christians that have been around for a while need to be reminded, and everybody can learn something new if your mind and your heart and your spirit are open to the Spirit of God. I say it's the manner of addressing the major objections to Christianity, and as you know, a lot of people have those. As a matter of fact, you and I may have had them and probably did before we came to Christ. And what we do here is we employ the biblical reality of truth, and we only go back to the Word of God. We don't rely on our own wisdom. We'd be uh, sunk if we had to do that. But we go to the Word of God, and that sets the foundation and the cornerstone for the faith that we so dearly love. So I'm going to invite and encourage you this morning, something a little different than I've done in the other uh, messages to date in this series, I'd like for everyone in the room, if you can, if you would, if you will, to join me. I'm going to read today's text verses, and there are six, nine, or ten verses here in Romans chapter one. The only catch is I'm reading this from the message, uh, only to amplify. I'm, I'm not going to do any disservice to whatever version you have or you prefer, but sometimes from the message or uh, paraphrases like that, you get some really good insight in prop in just ordinary, everyday English, and it's something that we can understand maybe a little better. So I'm starting at verse 16 of Romans 1. All of this is going to be on the screen, and I'm going to ask that we read it together. So let's get started. We'll take a little break after verse, I'm going to do the first two verses, 16 and 17, and then just break just, just, just for a moment, momentarily, and then we'll keep moving. So verse 16 says, if you want to read with me, it's news I'm most proud to proclaim. This extraordinary message starting with Jews. God's way of putting people right shows up in the acts of faith, confirming what Scripture has said all along. The person in right standing before God by trusting Him really lives. Let me just stop there for a moment. And in the message, the next uh, seven or eight verses are all kind of one package. And they have a heading. You probably have a Bible that every 
few verses or every chapter it has a heading. Well, those are not divinely inspired, but they've been added by whoever put that uh, version together. Here's what it says leading into this next section. And uh, I'd like us to say this together, but hear me first. Ignoring God leads to a downward spiral. So let's say that together. Ignoring God leads to a downward spiral. You are on your game. Okay, we're going to pick it up in verse 18 if we could. But God's angry displeasure erupts as acts of human mistrust and wrongdoing and lying accumulate as people try to put a shroud over truth. Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, if you're reading from your Bible, yeah, we're not in sync. So you're, it makes you smarter, but it doesn't do for the unison thing. And I want to get this really ingrained in everybody's mind. Okay, let's go to verse 19. But by, uh, go back to 19. But the basic reality of God is plain enough. Open your eyes, and there it is. Think about that verse. I mean, we all can understand that language, and it's really going to make the basic text for my message this morning. Okay, let's keep moving. By taking a long and thoughtful look at what God has created, people have always been able to see what their eyes as such can't see. Let's stop there. And I'm just, don't answer, but so far is this sentence making sense to you? Okay, here's what your eye, here's what you see by faith that your eyes can't see. Eternal power, for instance, and the mystery of his divine being. We'll keep right on moving. So nobody has a good excuse. There you have it. What happened was this. Now here's where it all came from. People knew God perfectly well, but when they didn't treat him like God, Refusing to worship him, they trivialized themselves into silliness and confusion so that there was neither sense nor direction left in their lives. They pretended to know it all, but were illiterate regarding life. You don't want to be illiterate about life and what the real meaning is. They traded the glory of God who holds the whole world in his hands for cheap figurines you can buy at any roadside stand. So God said, in effect, if that's what you want, mm, it wasn't long before they were living in a pig pen, smeared with filth, filthy inside and out. And all because they traded the true God for a fake God and worshipped the God they made Instead of the God who made them, the God we bless, the God who blesses us, oh yes. And if you got a New International or KJV or or, or a traditional uh, translation instead of OES, it just says amen. And amen means, oh yes, in agreement. Great. You guys are really on your game. That's wonderful. Thank you. Now, to start the message, uh, really get it going this morning, and even before I get it going, thank you again for reading that. That that just blesses my heart. I want to have a few, I want to give you, just throw out some what I call ignition questions, and I call them that, that's my own term, because I feel these questions can get your mental and spiritual machinery started up. 
and you can forget yourself and forget that little that little thing that's going on in that circle around you, and you can get your mind going so God can get through what he wants to get through to you. So I ask these questions, and I ask you to process them, but I ask you to please not respond verbally. Just in your own mind, your own head, and they don't make up part of my outline or anything. It's just, it gets you started. It gets the juices flowing. So here's the first question. Actually, it's a couple. They're together. Why are some people absolutely closed to the concept of the existence of God? And I want to ask this. Is this an intellectual problem or a moral one? Just think it over. Just, just think it over. Have that discussion in your head. Second question, if you found a rock in your yard that looked unusual to you and you investigated it and it had a carving of a face, would you assume it evolved or that someone had actually carved it? And for that answer, you'd have to do a bit of reasoning <laughs> to come to an answer, but it'll get, it'll get the brain going. Third question, why do some people have such a problem believing in miracles? Are there some miracles that you have trouble with? And you might say to me, well, I don't know if I've ever even seen a miracle. I don't even know what would be classified as a miracle. No, just read the New Testament. Just read some of the things in the Old Testament where God dealt with people and he did miraculous things. Do you have a problem with getting that... Getting your arms around that? And then the last question, how would you answer someone who wants to believe in God? This is where it gets down on the sidewalk where we live. But is hung up on things that seem to be against what we call the rational process. They're all set. They think they can do it. They want to believe. They want to put their faith in, a, quote unquote, a higher being or a higher source but they're having problems with some of the things that they look at that say, well, that's against nature, that's against the process, that's against what I know to be rational thinking. So my first question for you and for our thinking this morning as we move into the message, a couple more questions, how do you explain miracles to a scientist? And I'm generalizing when I say the word scientist, and I'm going to generalize when I say the word Christian. And how do you explain science to a Christian? And those are very fair questions. Very, very fair. We could go all day on those. Can it be done? Or is there a conflict between those two worlds? And how do we use objective critical reasoning and still believe in things like the parting of the Red Sea? How do we believe, use critical reasoning and believe a virgin can give birth to a child? How do we use critical reasoning and believe that shriveled hands and blind eyes can be restored? How do we use objective critical reasoning and believe that a man actually walked on water? Or a dead person emerged from the grave? So message number seven in our series Today is entitled, and you can see I plucked it right off the page of the message, Seeing What Your Eyes Can't See. And I'm going to be quoting people a lot this morning because 
if you really want to know, go to the source. If you really want to reason something out, go to people that have spent their lifetime doing that. So I go to a man by the name of William Lane Craig. Remember that name? Remember that name, Craig? He's a, it's a PhD, he's a PhD, noted scientist. He writes, has written for the Journal of the American Scientific Affiliation and, and scholarly publications and well-read and uh, well-written and, and, and a man that knows his stuff. And so um, he's written that the virgin birth was the main sticking point in keeping him from the Christian faith. And I want to quote what he said in that regard. You, you know, before you dismiss people and before you, you flush them down the drain, I mean, you, you need to hear what they're saying. You need to see how they're reasoning it. And, and so let's li- listen to Dr. Craig. He says, quote, When the Christian message was first shared with me as a teenager, I had already studied biology. I knew that for the virgin birth to be true, a Y chromosome had to be created out of nothing in Mary's ovum because Mary didn't possess the, the genetic material to produce a male child. To me, this was just utterly fantastic. It just didn't make sense. And the more I studied, the less sense it made. But as he continued to study the life of Christ and his teachings, he became overwhelmed by the attraction of Jesus Christ and his life in the life of people. So here's what he went on to say. He said, I guess the authenticity of the person of Jesus and the truth of his message were so powerful that they simply overwhelmed my any residual doubt that I had. Later, when Dr. Craig was asked how he got past the problem and past this mental block, which became a spiritual block in his life, he said this, Well, I sort of put the issue of the virgin birth aside, and I became a Christian anyway, even though I didn't really believe in the virgin birth. But then, after becoming a Christian, it occurred to me that I really do believe in a God who created the universe. So then for him to create a Y chromosome would be child's play. The same can be said for the resurrection. If God can create life out of nothing, raising some, someone from the dead would not be a problem. Now we know that many thinking people over the years have struggled with the supernatural events of the Bible. I mean, it just seemed impossible to them that there could be a reconciliation between faith on the one hand and objection, uh, objective rational thought on the other. So in an attempt to respond to that today, I want to bring up at least three points that I think I think you dear people need to hear, and I think we all need to consider these points. If you're really in a quest for truth, here we go. The first is this. And, and some people say, well, is there a battle? Is there a war? Is there a conflict between Christianity and science? Or science versus Christianity? I think we're going to answer that question. And, and, and point one is going to help you get started. And that is the Christian faith birthed modern science. 
Many people think that Christianity and science have been enemies from the beginning, or, or, or a fact that that's just simply untrue. The truth is that the earliest scientists were almost all Christian people. And the Christian faith is what made scientific investigation possible. Now, the reason for this is that in the not-too-distant past, and even in many places today, people tended to worship nature. So let's say if a tree is sacred, you dare not take the tree apart or do it any harm just to study the tree. And the ancient religions believed in something that we call today pantheism. That's the belief that God is not only in everything, everything is God. That belief has been revived in our 20 and 21st century culture, and it was popularized by a Walt Disney movie. Does anybody know where I'm going? Called Pocahontas. I'm not putting them down. I'm just saying that whole thing of pantheism was really brought out in the whole text of that, of that story. So we hear this idea, as many people today talk about the earth as a living being. I don't know who came up with that phrase, Mother Earth. I read my Bible, and on the first page I found that it wasn't Mother at all, it was Father. Where did Mother Nature come from? Well, I guess it's just Mother Nature. I don't know where those terms came from, but it wasn't the book, I'll tell you that. The ancient Greeks went the other direction. They equated the material world with evil and disorder. They believed it was futile to try to make sense out of anything, but the early Christians came on the scene. They began to introduce a new thought pattern into the minds of people. They taught that nature's good. And we ought to be taught that nature's good, and we ought to respect it, and we ought to preserve it best we can. But it's not a god. It's not about the self-destruct. It has design because it was created by an intelligent being. There is intelligence and order behind the universe. The universe is friendly, not hostile and capricious. Nature is not sacred, but is to be used as a gift from a good and loving God. The natural world is not God or the same as God. It is his creation, and it is separate from him. He is not the soul of nature. In effect, these Christians de-deified, if we can make that a word, or undeified, however we want to say it, nature. That is, they taught that nature was not, was not sacred in itself, and it could still be studied without fear. The laws of nature were predictable because they were the laws of a dependable and orderly God. And no, no, man is not, man will not, and man cannot destroy this or any other planet. That was pretty quiet. If you didn't believe that before I said it, you need to start thinking about it. We're told this every day. If we do this, 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 if we have that, 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 and if we don't do and we do and we don't do that and something else, boom, she's gone. If you're a person of faith, I gotta say your faith is about that big. We've got a, I've got a bigger God than that. When he created everything, 
in this universe, he knew what he was doing. And he wasn't going to leave it to us to manage it. He left it to us to care for it best we could. And that's as far as it goes. Most of the earliest scientists were people, I'm going to say this again, of profound faith. Who were they? People like Copernicus, I think Todd mentioned uh, him in, in a message uh, recently. Galileo, Isaac Newton, read some good stuff, Isaac Newton. Kepler, many others were men of deep personal faith and conviction. Isaac Newton wrote this, the world arose from the perfectly free will of God. And that we, we must investigate the world, he said, by observation and experiment. Copernicus was convinced that the world, which the God he loved had made, was mathematically precise. And before telescopes were even invented, he theorized that the planets orbited around the sun rather than around the earth, because that fit the mathematical formulas better. Galileo, who held to all, pretty much all the theory of Copernicus, was called a heretic by his church, the church of the day. But he claimed that even though his work contradicted popular beliefs of that time, which had been influenced by Greek philosophy, that'll kill any good plan, it did not contradict a proper understanding of the Bible. And he was much more interested in working from that framework. Galileo, if you'll study it, was a man of deep faith who believed he was revealing the laws of God, and indeed he was, by his work. Now, let me say it again. These great men of faith paved the way for modern scientific thinking. They understood that at the center of the universe is a divine intelligence. Life is not random this is going to come as a real good news to some of you. Life is not chaotic. You say, oh, you ought to live in my house. No, no. Life is not random and life is not chaotic. Any randomness or chaos is what we produce. It's what we make of it. As the world of, their of that time, the time of these early scientists, uh, people believed that, that anything happened was just random. And basically it was just a lot of chaos going on and somehow we'll try to make some sense of it. Rather, they believed that it's rational and it's ordered. The world is not subject to the whims of thousands of gods. There is one true and living God. And he's our God. And he's the father of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've settled that. Christian faith birthed modern science. Period. The second thing that people in search of truth need to consider is this. I love this section. Miracles are not things done against natural law. Miracles are done according to natural law. I'm going to revisit William Lane Craig. He has some great things to say. He gives a couple of examples. He says, it is a law of nature that oxygen and potassium combust when they're combined. 
But do you know what? Every single person sitting in this room and standing in this room and walking around in this room has oxygen and potassium in their body. And yet, I don't see anybody bursting into flames. I thought I was going to half an hour ago. It was so hot in here, but I'm getting a little stuff from the fan in that helmet. So, does that mean that it's a miracle? And I'm violating some law of nature because I have potassium and I have oxygen in my body and I haven't burst into flames yet? No. Because the law merely states what happens under idealized conditions, assuming no other factors are interfering. In this case, however, there are other factors interfering with the combustion. So it doesn't take place. That's not a violation of the law of nature. In giving another example, a little simpler example, the the, uh, scientist goes on. He says, if you drop an object, it'll fall to the earth. How many have noticed that? How many have noticed it falls to the earth more often than it used to? Uh Uh-huh. That earth just keeps jumping up there and getting it. But if an apple falls from a tree and you see it and you reach out to catch it before it hits the ground, you are not violating nor negating the law of gravity. You're merely intervening. And he goes on to say, catching the apple doesn't overturn the law of gravity or require that the formulation of a new law be done. It is merely the intervention of a person with free will who overrides the natural causes operative in that particular circumstance. And that essentially is what God does when he causes a miracle to happen or to occur in your life or around you or whatever. What Dr. Craig is saying is is miracles or supernatural acts, as we understand them, are not really miracles in the sense that God sets aside his natural law. It is God intervening in natural law in a way which we're not familiar with. And we can't explain it. And we don't know because all we know is what the natural law says. To us, it seems like a miracle. To him, it's God doing what God does in his wisdom and what God can do. God didn't create the laws of nature only to break them at will. That wouldn't, be, that wouldn't really pan out. But he may intervene in some way that we are unfamiliar with at the time. So the laws of science, <laughs> I know this wouldn't sit too well with some people, but I'm, this, is, this is just the truth of the matter. The laws of science are God's laws. Observed, discovered, studied, written down, verifiable, because an all-knowing God created the world. We still believe that, don't we? Well, four of us do. We'll get a few more next time I say it. We know that God created the world. We're up to 10. And he also created the laws which govern that world. So we've seen two of the three. We're, getting, we're, we're really, really moving along now. Third thing that the person in a quest for truth, and I hope that's you, needs to consider would be this. To close the door to the possibility of the existence of God goes against the very fabric of scientific inquiry. 
Some scientists, not all, are completely closed to the existence of God. Some are close to the idea of even considering that there might be a God. But if you won't honestly explore the evidence that could be set before you, then you just seal off that option. You're, gonna, you're, you're going against the very principles of objective scientific investigation. Let me illustrate. Let's suppose, and this is all supposition because I don't really have one of these, but let's suppose in my study on the wall... I have a cuckoo clock. I don't, like I said, there's only one cuckoo in that study at a time. <laughs> but I just prize that cuckoo clock. And it's just, oh, there it is. It's beautiful. And I just think the world of that. One of my favorite things. What if I refuse to believe that that clock was made by a clockmaker? But instead, it was a rather curious assortment of parts that just happened to come together. I could take it all apart. I couldn't put it back together, but I could take it all apart. And I could investigate how it works. I could weigh the weights. How many of you have seen the weights on the chains? Yeah. I could measure the length of the chain. I could open the back and see the gears and the mechanisms that make that thing work. I could investigate the carving on the clock's face. And that's pretty good. That's, that's pretty intricate. And I could, I could develop all kinds of theories on that. And then I could try to figure out how it took on the shape. Like it has leaves and the birds and, and all the things that are on it. And I could see the little cuckoo bird come out on the hour and a half hour and, and, and wonder, did it just evolve that way? Where did it come from? And, and, and it comes out and then it closes and, and it chose over time to cuckoo at those particular times. Those are the times when you're either trying to sleep or you're trying to concentrate on something. And out, yeah, some of you are nodding. Okay, so you know. So you let the chains go down to the floor and it runs out and now it's just a an ornament on your wall. How many have lived through that? Okay, quite a few. Okay. I could observe the spacing of the Roman numerals on the face and consider how they happen to be exactly the same distance from each other and how they got aligned in a perfect circle. I could study the clock completely and in great depth so that I could understand how it worked and I could tell you how it worked. But if I was never willing to consider the fact that the clock was made by someone, I would be missing a very important piece of information. And I would be making many assumptions that would not be true. And because my mind was closed to the possibility of a clockmaker somewhere, I would observe the design while refusing to consider the possibility of a designer. I, would, I could study the mechanics of the clock 
but miss the purpose of the clock. And if I approach my clock like that, tell me, would I be a scientist or a fool? I don't answer. <laughs> so I'm going to quote another scholar, Patrick Glynn, Harvard-educated scholar. He said he abandoned his atheism to become a Christian because, listen to this, of the intricate balance of this universe. For him, it all pointed to an intelligence. He called it a magnificent intelligence, the magnitude of which we can't even imagine. This intelligence has designed the world in infinite and exquisite detail. Glenn wrote this, and I want to read it to you. Today, the concrete data point strongly in the direction of the God hypothesis, he calls it. Those who wish to oppose it have no testable theory to marshal. Only speculations about unseen universes spun from fertile scientific imagination. Ironically, the picture of the universe bequeathed to us by the most advanced 20 and 21st century science is closer in spirit, listen to this, to the vision presented in the book of Genesis than anything offered by science since Copernicus. End of quote. I'm not Louis Giglio, but let me just tell you something. Those facts just stir my heart. Those things just do something to my brain. And then our old buddy Philip Yancey in his popular book Soul, S-O-U-L, Survivor, wrote, and I quote, religion and not science at least proposes an answer to these questions. One, why is there something rather than nothing? That, isn't that a Philip Yancey, if you've ever read anything? And Stephen Hawking put it this way, why does the universe bother to exist then? And why is it, again, uh, Yancey says, why is it that that something is so beautiful and orderly? <laughs> now here's, 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 Here's the, here's the crux of the matter. <clears throat> the burden of proof is on those who see order and try to explain how it came from chaos. You want a little assignment? Take that one on. They see intricacy and, 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 and there's no artist. They see design, but refuse to admit even the possibility of a designer. They see beauty and intelligent life forms. Pick one. <laughs> I know, you picked beauty. And they say it all came from, it just all came from randomness. I don't know about you, but that's an insult. And I've studied a lot of science. I was in pre-med when I started college. You get a lot of science there. 
You get a lot of biology. Someone asked me one day if I believed in evolution. I said, which one of the 32 theories are we talking about? And that's an insult to me, that somebody actually thinks that this all came, this beauty and intelligence, all came from randomness. There, I got over it. I'm okay now. They see a world that's packed with pleasure and goodness and joy, which a lot of people are missing, and they say, oh, that's all an accident. They see the sky, but they do not see heaven. They see a tree, a beautiful tree, or a beautiful marine scene, or a coastline, and they fail to see the hand of Almighty God. I just, I just think the burden of proof is on them. Someone said, pity the poor atheist. He sees the beautiful sunrise that you and I see, and he has no one to thank. The sun rises, and the sun sets in Maine's summer this year, have been, I think, the most extraordinary that we've seen in years. And some have seen the, the northern lights, and I've seen pictures of some of those, and it's just absolutely phenomenal. That's all random, you understand. Nobody knows where that came from, and nobody's responsible for that. But So an American pastor took a trip over to the UK, and he said this, so... I'm going, to, I'm going to tell the story in his, in his language, or in his, yeah, yeah I'm, going to, I'm going to dictate. He said, I took this trip to the UK. For me, my belief in God was reaffirmed recently by something I would not have expected. He said, while I was in London, England, I visited St. Paul's Cathedral. He said, worshiping in that great cathedral, your eyes are drawn. They can't help it. You cannot prevent it. They are drawn to the beautiful dome. The dome of St. Paul's is one of the grandest in all the world. Actually, it's three domes, not just one, because there's one on top of the other. See it? And the highest and the smallest dome has windows, making you think they are the very windows of heaven. That's what Christopher Wren had in mind, I'm sure. He said, I stood there in that great place surrounded by exquisite art and architecture, and I said to a friend that was with me, this building makes me believe in God. Now, we don't worship buildings, and that's not how we... We're not trying to make a building a God, but you understand how you can be that inspired and worshipful when you're in a place that is drawn to, that you're drawn to and you're brought into the presence of God. Here's what he went on to say. He said, I think my friend was somewhat taken back by my statement that a physical man-made building could make me believe in God. But I said, what else could inspire such a sense of transcendence and create a feeling of otherworldliness, a world of unspeakable beauty and holy purpose. Aren't those great words? Yes, they are, Bob. They're great. These glorious monuments to God are all over England and many parts of Europe, 
Countries which were strongly influenced, must we, we just forget things historically. We just wipe stuff off the historical map. It's shame on us. We need to have a sense of history. Countries which were strongly influenced by the Christian faith, you can name them one after another, after another, after another. Name me one monument to the devil which has been built in his honor. And I said to my friend, I can't think of even one. He went on. But then I began to think. Actually, he said, I have seen a monument to the devil. He said, it exists in a, in a country that I visited a few years before, whose national religion is voodoo. That's devil worship. It was a country of Haiti. We drove by it on our way to the mission station in Cape Haitian. It is the center for voodoo worship. A huge mud, he said, I don't know what you call it, hole, where chickens are strangled and their blood is poured into the pool. Rumors are that there are even, there are even secret rites where human sacrifices are offered to the devil. Wouldn't doubt it. And their blood becomes part of the mud as well. They're unspeakable, or were, I don't know if it's still practiced, acts of evil performed there. Worshippers come to cover themselves with the mud of that cursed place. He said, so there I stood, thinking about one country whose religion worships, and at one time worshipped very strongly, Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, and another country whose religion worshipped the devil. The monument to Jesus Christ was an exquisite cathedral. And let me just say this for a minute and just put it in a parenthesis. I have never enjoyed watching the Summer Olympics like I did this time because 40 times a night I saw Jesus standing over Rio watching over all those 11 million people. Amen. Hallelujah. I just said every time they showed that and they would clip out, then they would come back in and they'd go to the top of the mountain and then come down to Olympic Stadium and I'd say to my wife, there's touchdown Jesus again. Yeah. Well, that's what they call him at Notre Dame, but amazing, amazing, amazing thing. And I'm just glad they still have it. It won't be long before some terrorist group decides they've got to pull that off the mountain. I guarantee you that they'll build one twice as big. At any rate, I was talking about the comparison between the worship of the devil and that beautiful cathedral in London, England. The monument to Christ is beautiful. The monument to the devil is a mud hole with blood. One was transcendent in its themes of beauty and design, and the other is vile and ugly. One inspires noble thought, and holy living, and the truth of God's Word. And the other arouses perverse thoughts and evil acts. One is elevating, and the other is degrading. One makes you look up. And, the, and when you walk into that cathedral, or any great cathedral or basilica, you can't help but look up. You can't help it. That's the way it's designed. And the other makes you look down. So, shh, let's get this. I believe the Bible. 
when it says in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, that's time, God created the heavens, that's space, and the earth, that's matter. Not because I want to believe it, but because all the evidence points to it. And the very famous scientist by the name of Leon Eisenle puts it like this. I love this statement. At the core of the universe, the face of God wears a smile. Getting a hold of, believing, accepting what I've said this morning you will be seeing what your eyes can't see. So I want to ask, may I? Where are you on your quest for truth? John 14 and 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know the rest. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Jesus is the truth. Do you know him? Oh, friend. Oh, friend. If you haven't met him, come today and meet him. And you'll be seeing what your eyes can't see. Can we bow quietly and reflect? And can I pray with you? And by the way, the worship team, you, you can come. Please do. If you're here this morning and you'd like us to know that your heart has been stirred and you're making a decision for Christ, would you take a minute and take one of these connect cards that may be in the pocket of the chair and, and, and maybe just turn it over and, and check off that line that says, today I became a follower of Jesus Christ. Or I'd like to know more about what my next steps would be. Or I'd like to know more about a relationship with Jesus. Or I was interested in, in learning more, maybe about baptism or church membership or whatever. And then just leave it on your chair or put it in one of the boxes in the lobby, whichever. Or hand it to one of the pastors before you leave today. Where are you on your quest for truth? Jesus said, I am the truth. Do you know him? Oh, come. Come and meet him. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the wonderful blessing of having the truth. Having your word and knowing the living word. Father, today, if there be one here even who has not embraced that truth or not met our Lord Jesus, may this be the day, the hour, the time for salvation for that precious person. Bless us as we continue to worship you and lift up the name of our blessed Savior in whose name we pray right now. Amen.